The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, League Cup Final. Liverpool get the Carabao in the can. Bye-bye Bielsa. Leeds give the legend his marching orders and prepare to take orders from March. We'll look back on the Premier League action from the weekend and ahead to the FA Cup fifth round, including non-league Boreham Woods chances away at Everton. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. All right, Monday 28th of February, listener, and joining us in the pod today, we've got Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Good morning, James. Also with us, Natalie Jedra. Welcome back, Natalie, of ESPN Brazil. Hello. Lovely to see you again. And also here's Sasha Gurionov. Hey, Sasha. Morning, James. How are you doing? Well, it's uh, it's a bit mixed, isn't it? Um, mm. The world is very different, I think, from, from when it was only a few days ago. Um, it's... I think it's it's cut sort of it's hard for me to articulate sort of the sort of the frustration and bewilderment um, at what's happening, and it's just it, for me it's been quite hard to, to to focus on the football to be honest. Mm. All three of you were at the League Cup final on on Sunday at Wembley, no? Yep, we were. Yeah, and even uh, though I didn't see Daniel, so I'm just I'm just trusting his word. Yeah, yeah, we just believe him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a big moment before, absolutely, as you say, Sasha, at the forefront of everybody's minds right now, the the situation of the people of Ukraine as they um, as they suffer this this invasion, um, and the, the Wembley crowd was it the entire stadium joining in the chorus of uh, "You'll Never Walk Alone"? Did that become a kind of neutral expression of solidarity, or not? I don't not entirely? think so. I, I was mean, by that... the Chelsea fans. I don't think it was. I think it was just a Liverpool right. end. Okay. But it was, I mean, I was reassured to see, uh, I was slightly worried going to the game whether, you know, we know tribalism as it is. I was wondering whether we might get a kind of defence of Roman, which therefore becomes a kind of implicit defence of Russia almost from Chelsea fans. But there were loads of Ukraine flags in the Chelsea end, which was really reassuring. And although they didn't sing, we'll never walk alone, that, you know, that doesn't reflect any lack of feeling on their part, don't you mm. think? Yeah, certainly you'll never walk alone with Ukraine colours, uh, banners and, and the like on display. Of course, scenes in so many places around football and in all walks of life in, in demonstration of solidarity with, with Ukraine. Eintracht Frankfurt with their, their stadium scoreboard, they put a pretty explicit stop it Putin uh, message up ahead of the game with Bayern Munich, which is nice because you've seen a lot of calls for peace and very kind of ambivalent uh, and neutral Reflections. You you probably saw the moment when uh, Roman Yurimchuk came on for Benfica against Vitoria in, in Lisbon, and and uh, the whole stadium gave him that standing ovation. A slightly, what to make of? I mean, we should touch briefly on on Chelsea, of course, featured in the League Cup final, and the announcement by Roman Abramovich that uh, he was ceding control of the club to a trust, uh, you know, for Chelsea's good, uh, which. I think it was taken at face value by a lot of people, but a day or two on, not sure how much it actually means. Certainly privately, a lot of the trustees have said they have absolutely no intention of taking this up, talk of being used as, of, as a front and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it almost feels like the equivalent of the, the kind of classic 
thoughts and prayers and that there may be some good intention but it doesn't actually count for a great deal in terms of legalese and stewardship is and care are, are nothing without ownership and they are nothing to do with ownership it might be a gesture and it might be a, a you know let's give the benefit of not much doubt and it might be a very well-meaning gesture but it does feel like an, an attempt to um avoid Chelsea being involved in sanctions which is is yeah, is is an understandable move on on Abramovich's part, but it, it doesn't mean anything. Mm. You know, you can't give someone stewardship. That that isn't a thing. The other major development in football terms is the uh, position taken by various national FAs that they won't play Russia. Uh, principally, Poland. I think were the first to announce this, who are due to be playing Russia in the World Cup uh, qualifier playoffs. Uh, they've said they won't go ahead. That Sweden potential opponents of Russia further down the line have also called themselves out as of various nations, in, in, including England. No word that, well, FIFA actually, their position, Infantino, who refused to answer questions about whether he would return his Order of Friendship medal that he received from Vladimir Putin. FIFA's position is that Russia can continue to play games, but without flags being used or under a different flag. And and behind closed doors, which I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone listening to this who thinks that that's an adequate solution. I, I can't, I mean, I don't think anyone can countenance really how you would play football against a team representing a nation that's doing what Russia's currently doing. Sasha, would you agree with that? Uh, I, I, I agree. And um, Poland and Sweden already said no to the to whatever flag this team is going to come out on that. But I think also historically, like looking at what FIFA have done in the past, I'm not sure what FIFA have done in the past on this. Because, for example, when Argentina invaded the Falcons in 1982, they still played in the World Cup. In 1974, I think this is the one that sort of the, the Russians are thinking of, um, Pinochet overthrew Allende uh, when USSR was supposed to play Chile uh, in the playoffs for the World Cup. They played the first leg in Moscow. It was nil-nil. And I think between before the second leg, the coup d'etat happened and Soviet Union didn't travel. Uh, and they, I mean, they boycotted Chile and Chile went to the World Cup. Mm. Uh, but then certain, certainly you have examples of Yugoslavia, uh, but that's within UEFA, uh, Yugoslavia being thrown out in the early 90s. But as it stands, it's, it's very difficult to see how Ru a Russian international sport can continue in current conditions. And I think this is something that I think a lot of people in Russia realize as well. Um, and I think it's going to be sort of currently as things stand. Um, apparently today is going to be a discussion about whether Spartak Moscow can continue in Europa League. Right. Uh, because they already have to play on neutral ground and probably soon they won't be able to fly to Germany. I mean, there's, there's all these extra complications. I think also interestingly, you know, Daniel Farke went to work for Krasnodar. Krasnodar didn't play this weekend because Krasnodar Airport was closed for civilian use because of you know what. Uh, so what, like, what's he going to do going forward? And there's um, Voronin at Dinamo Moscow uh, who was given compassionate leave and the fans were chanting for him. Um, and it makes Russian society question itself. Right. It makes people involved with Russia, I think, question themselves as to where they really stand. Well, I think that's really interesting because whilst there is an impact of the war, the invasion on sport. I think, yeah, obviously, that's the least of the, the questions about the impact of what, what Russia's done in Ukraine. But the significance of this impact on sport and sport's reaction to it is perhaps greatest in its ability to get the message of what's happening in Ukraine back to Russia so that there are... I mean, I, it is said, Sasha, and maybe you might have a better picture of this than us, that it is very hard 
for people in Russia to know what's going on uh, in Ukraine and perhaps through sport and through nations refusing to play Russia and all these other ramifications that more truth will arrive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the sort of things that are more difficult to ignore when things aren't actually happening, like, I don't know, football games and people, you know, would think, you know, for what reason. For me personally, the situation, I mean, I've been to Kiev a number of times. Um, I love the place. I've got mates there, you know, obviously through all the football. Uh, one of my friends, um, you know, I got him tickets to AC Milan when Liverpool played there in the way, and he went with his wife and his 10-year-old daughter. And I'm thinking of guys like him because, I mean, on, on Thursday when I was reading the news in the morning and I was taking my kids to school into the nursery, and they were taking the kids to basements. And I'm like, it's just, um, um, on a very personal level, I think it's, it's, it's just incomprehensible. And um, it's like, I, I mean, there was like a rocket that hit an apartment block and I recognized it because you can see it from the window of my mates with whom I stayed during the 28 Champions League final. And it's just all very close to the bone. And I think it's also very close to the bone for a lot of Russia because I don't know if people like appreciate outside of, of the part of the world, there's a lot of connection between Russia and Ukraine. It's two big populations. Uh, people have relatives on both sides of the border. And this is another thing as well, you know, in terms of information flow through official channels which, or through social media, you also have so many personal links, uh, which you, you can't just cut. Um, and, you know, people, people talk, uh, people know that their relatives are trying to flee, um, some successfully, some not. Um, and I think in the modern age, the full picture, whilst it's difficult maybe to piece the whole, to piece details together, um, the overall picture is pretty, pretty horrific. And I don't think this will escape uh, anybody in the world, to be honest. And that, that includes Russia. All right. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will wonder at the impact of the thoughts and prayers style reactions from a lot of football. But any, any impetus they can give to turning the tide on, on what's been happening in Ukraine, I think, uh, has to be welcomed. Anyway, let's get on to the football and the Carabao Cup final. Keeper against keeper. Oh! Liverpool win the Carabao Cup. Peppers skied it. Chelsea have blown it. Sunday afternoon at Wembley Stadium. Chelsea nil, Liverpool nil but Liverpool winning the Carabao Cup 11-10 on penalties. You were all there for non-scoring 120 minutes, followed by the highest-scoring shootout ever between two top-flight English teams. Natalie, did you enjoy the shootout? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, well, I think we all enjoyed everything. I think it was the, the most uh, prolific new-new that, that I've seen in <laughs> my life with four goals, and but still new-new. And then the, the shootout, the quality of the penalties was outstanding they were really going for it and well a lot of things impressed me uh in this in this great football match but i think uh start, starting with liverpool what i find different in this liverpool is that they seem much more mature without losing that edge you know because uh, a couple of years ago or three years ago if you compare this liverpool to the other liverpools who who were uh, fighting for championships, they, they just seemed like they had so much to lose at any point. You know, that edge uh, that we really enjoy when watching Liverpool. But now they seem much more in control of their own actions and they don't lose that intensity. They force some spectacular saves from Mendy. And I think we're going to get into the, the goalkeeping situation. They kind of look tired uh, on extra time, but 
they still looked composed and managed to have a really good penalty shootout. So that aspect of Liverpool really stands out for me, not only yesterday, but during the whole season, how, how much they look mature, but at the same time intense, and they still have that edge. God love football scriptwriters. Hey, uh, Daniel. Kepa, infamous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and look, that was pre-planned. Edward Mendy knew what was happening. Thomas Tuchel knew what was happening. Kepa knew what was happening. He started, you know, he started preparing to come on three or four minutes before he did, and and and, and it was ex- it was kind of expected. Although we we hadn't really considered that, you know, it would go to a penalty shootout when goals were being disallowed and posts were being hit and saves were being made throughout the ninety minutes. Um, personally, I th- I think Tuchel got it wrong, which is is incredible outcome by us on my part. Of course, it is. It's hindsight, but. It isn't just that Kepa has a better penalty record at saving penalties than Edouard Mendy. There has to be some weighing up of the situation, in my opinion. And Mendy was the game's best player. Uh, Mendy won AFCON three weeks ago in a penalty shootout. So he, he knows what it takes. And he is, I think, probably the best goalkeeper in the world on current form, if not the best, certainly in the top three. And... I think that makes a difference. I think if, if you're a Liverpool player stepping up and Edouard Mendy has made three, well, one incredible save, but two or three more brilliant saves, I think that makes a difference in your mind. I think it's easier to face him than Kepa. Sasha, as a keeper yourself of some note, that's a really interesting point. But psychologically, there must be an extent to which you need to make saves to get your confidence up for a, for a game. If you're Mendy and you've been through 90 minutes of pulling off spectacular saves... Presumably you're going to be in a better mental state to face spot kicks than if you're Kepa coming off the bench specifically for spot kicks and therefore with all the pressure in the world on you, especially when you remember that you were the guy who refused to come off in an equivalent moment in 2019. I think it's an interesting situation because I think in terms of preparation, you know, they could have had Kepa focusing on penalties purely um, uh, as opposed to Mendy. Um, I, I think... It's an interesting thing to, to do. It's certainly unusual and it's certainly risky, uh, even if for Kepa's reputation, because his reputation as a penalty expert is now completely in tatters um, because he, he contributed, he didn't contribute and he lost the shootout for them in the end. I would say, though, one thing, and this is, I'm going to go completely um, contrary to the narrative. Uh, I don't think Mendy is the best goalkeeper in the world. I think in this game, he tried very hard to give away two goals. Um, because of basic technical deficiencies. Uh, He's a big presence. I think he uses his size very well and pretty effectively, but the amazing double save in the first half should never have been a double save. Um, And then in the second half, he's missed kick letting Salah and only Salah's poor finish prevented Liverpool from going a goal ahead. Uh, So I don't think when people look at Mendy, people think, oh my God, look, he's he's extraordinary. He's going to save everything. I I, I don't think strikers should have it in their mind because um, I don't think think he's that brilliant. Um, And I know most of people in the world disagree with me. So when it comes to penalties, um, it's not, again, just necessary to be big like he is. I think it takes more than that. So maybe sort of the, the coaching staff do have good logical reason to put Kepa in. But I think the thing that broke Kepa in this particular shootout was the third penalty from Liverpool, when he basically left a third of the goal for Van Dijk, and he absolutely smashed it past them. And Van Dijk was there going, I see, I've seen this with Van Dijk before. He has like moments of extreme competitiveness. And this one, he absolutely leathered it. And I think from that moment onwards, he just basically said to him, look, he leathered it like, crucially to the same side. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. On, so like, he basically he, he offered him the side, and he just shot straight through him. And I thought at that stage, yeah, 
that Liverpool penalty takers, I thought, would prevail. But the problem was, Kelleher wasn't saving anything either. So mm-hmm. then you have to a stage where then, Kepa needs to save Kanata's penalty, and he should have saved Kanata's penalty, he didn't. Um, but yeah, interesting, interesting game of psychology. And no, I don't think Mendy's are great. <laughs> but I think I think you either start with Mendy and go with Mendy or you start with Kepa and I'm looking at the human side of it. You have Kepa that played the, the whole tournament and on the other side you have Kelleher who played the whole tournament. So Klopp is there benching Allison and Tuchel is playing uh, Mendy. Of course, they they it was already arranged. They they let's assume that they they really did uh, talk it through and of course they did, but if you're Kepa, you, of course you're affected by it. You play the whole tournament. You're 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 watching Liverpool uh, in the same situation as you are, but they're benching their main their, their main goalkeeper, and then you play Mendy, and then it comes to the penalty shootout. It's not the same level of confidence. You're not going to get your player in the same level of confidence as you were if you started Kepa or uh, if you if you kept that decision. So I think. It, it, it's he did that in the Super Cup and it worked, but it was a different context. It was it was just one match. It was the start of the season, but now you have a goalkeeper who was important during the whole campaign and he's not playing the final, and you're only putting him uh, for the penalty shootout. I I, I think it, it has an effect. I also think that the psychological advantage of of those decisions and and the famous one is obviously Tim Krul uh, in the World Cup. The, the advantage there was established because nobody knew it was coming and it did spook Costa Rica's players. That psychological advantage is clearly lessened when, if you'd have asked me before the game, if Mendy starts, do you think Kepa will be on for penalties? I'd have probably said yes, because it happened exactly the same in the Super Cup and that's how it goes. So the, Liverpool must have considered the option that Kepa would come on penalties. And if they were if they were planning their penalties, if they were planning where to put them, where the keeper goes, the, his tells then they would have done it for both goalkeepers because mm. that that's the level of analysis now. So I think some of that psychological advantage is lost through repetition. Uh, well, the final was certainly lost when Kepper took that decisive spot kick, much like a goal kick, people have pointed out. Quivin Kelleher then leading the celebrations for Liverpool. No goalkeeper in, in their history has won more penalty shootouts than Quivin. For Liverpool, Sasha, how much does this mean? Oh, I, think, I think it keeps, keeps the momentum. Um, I know Michael Cox doesn't like um, classifying uh, nil-nil draws that end in shootout wins as wins, but I do. And I think that's Liverpool's 10th consecutive win. Uh, they've conceded maybe three or four goals in that run. Uh, they're certainly building up a momentum that's reminiscent of the end of 2018-2019 season. Uh, for this game as well, they were hit with a late change. Thiago got injured in the warm-up and they've right. coped with it. Um, I have to say the game itself, I think, you know, we've been talking about the goalkeeping, but the um, the game itself was curious because Kelleher himself made two really crucial saves in the fifth and the 95th minute. Um, and in between, so at, at the end and the start of the first half and the second half, Chelsea created excellent chances. I mean, his Mount hitting the post. There was a couple of tactical tweaks. I think when Mount hit the post, he was central for a bit. And I think Liverpool didn't quite react to that. But then between those spells, particularly like for about 20 minutes in the first half, Liverpool had like 85% of the ball. Mm. Um, and I thought it was very interesting in the way it was so engrossing. But Liverpool didn't actually create that many clear-cut chances. But then sort of they came in batches and so did Chelsea's. And there's all these goals that got ruled out as well very marginally. I thought Van Dijk, mm, I wasn't really sure where the Liverpool goal, I think Liverpool could have stood. Then extra time. 
I actually thought Habit's score was okay. But the thing is, the whole, the whole, the way that the game kept everybody around us gripped, I thought was amazing. Yeah, for for nil nil, and also if you compare it to the two two draw these teams played out in the league at the start of January, I thought this was much more the, the impressive game because at the start of January, I thought Chelsea and Liverpool. After about 65 seconds, which looked knackered and looked spent. Whereas here, they 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 kept going. Liverpool got tired in extra time, but I thought they managed the game very well. There was a very few uh, clear-cut chances, apart from the two goals for, for, for Chelsea. And I think throughout, I think for Liverpool to keep up this momentum, they got Norwich now coming up in the cup. They got a few sort of more winnable games in the Champions League and in the league. And I think they, and I think for all of Liverpool fans, they, the date with City at the start of April is where one would hope Liverpool would come in with this momentum, which they're currently built up. Mm, City, who didn't look insurmountable this weekend, as we'll touch on later on their game away at Everton. The injury to Thiago, how serious is that? How long is he going to be out for? Any idea yet? I wasn't sure. No, I, I no. found out okay. on kickoff. I was, I was, I was looking at why is he not on the pitch? And mm. um, uh, yes, yeah, so he was in tears. We should say was he? he was. Yeah, he was to say that. Um, you know, the League Cup final. I, I thought it was a brilliant game because it both matters a huge amount because it's a cup final and also doesn't define those club seasons or probably mm. won't define those club seasons which puts it in this hinterland where brilliant football can happen I think um, but I was amazed to see Thiago crying I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of how serious the injury is more just missing the occasion and okay. kind of wanting to contribute but I think that says an awful lot about the mood and the kind of strength of character within Liverpool squad that someone like Thiago who has won plenty is so desperate to be involved in a League Cup final is that's a really positive angle I think. And again, having an injury problem. And and, and about Callagher, I, I spoke to him after the match, and he mentioned that he he actually he never uh, practiced uh, penalties. I asked that to Fabinho, and he was like, "You know what? Yesterday was the first day I, I saw him practicing that. I've never seen him practicing that. So that was the first. And and he said that the way that he scored the penalty was exactly how he practiced over and over on Saturday. So that was his choice. And I remember I remembered. Actually Actually, uh, uh, a talk I had with Alison like two or three years ago, and he was like, "You know what? We have an, a young goalkeeper there, and he impresses everyone because not only he's very talented, but his personality. You know, he he has this big personality. He looks really young, but he has this big personality. And when I saw Kelleher in the penalty shootout, I was like, okay, there's the personality that Alison mentioned like three years mm. ago. Are they going to win the title, Sasha? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah." All right, then. I'm not even well, joking. Right, no, clearly. <laughs> of course, um, it's FA Cup next for Liverpool, as Sasha was mentioning. Liverpool facing Norwich on Wednesday. It's the fourth time those two teams will face each other this season. Liverpool have won the previous three meetings, 3-0, 3-0, and a 3-1 just over a week ago. Chelsea, meanwhile, away at Luton that same evening. Luton are in some form. We'll talk more about the prospects of maybe a surprise there and the fifth round in general later on. But next up, we've got some big Premier League talking to do. So, Mr. Raniak, what's troubling you? Well, we've got a, a leak in the dressing room, Doctor. Right, and you want to find out who it is? No, no, I just can't find a good plumber. Sometimes there's only so much you can do. But with Paddy Power, our offers are watertight. So this weekend, get money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 plus 4 bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power! Pre-match online bet builder bets only. Minards 1 to 5 per leg. Max free bet £10 per day. 7-day free bet expiry. Excludes enhanced match odds. Eligibility restrictions and T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be gamble aware. Talk. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Your Premier League results. The weekend kicked off on Friday with a 2-0 win for Saints against Norwich. Elsewhere, Newcastle continued to climb out of trouble with a 2-0 win at Brentford and moved the Bees closer to it. That game marking the return to football of Christian Eriksen. Villa got a much-needed win at Brighton 2-0. Burnley got a point at Crystal Palace. Everton were narrowly beaten by Man City amid controversy over a Rodri handball later on. West Ham won uh, the Wolves 1-0 and it was 0-0 at Old Trafford for Man United and Watford. Possibly the biggest result of all, though, was the Saturday lunchtime game, which saw Leeds United face Tottenham, lose 4-0 and subsequently part company with much-loved manager Marcelo Bielsa. Three and a half years he and his translator spent at Ellen Road, the longest he spent with any club in his career, leading them to their long-awaited promotion to the Premier League in 2020 and a ninth-place finish last season, let's not forget. Well, to give us a bit more perspective on Bielsa and the situation going forward for Leeds, we're joined now by Phil Hay, the Athletics Leeds correspondent and the man who wrote the book on Bielsa at Leeds, available from all good bookshops, and it was beautiful. And it was, Phil, as you join us now. What a ride this has been. It, it's been like no other ride I've experienced writing about a head coach and, and probably like no other ride um, I or, or Leeds are going to have in the future. It's not to say that another head coach or another manager won't be more successful than Bielsa, won't win trophies, won't take them further up the league, but I think it's... It's the, the the various strands to Bielsa. It's the the cultural impact he's had, the the aesthetic appeal, the fact that the, there was so much resistance actually among the fan base to the decision to sack him, even though they'd had the week that they'd had, they'd had the month that they'd had, even though it was down to a gap of two points to the bottom three, and and clear that they were in a huge amount of trouble. He, he's earned really unanimous respect. He goes with his reputation, a hundred percent intact, and I I think vastly enhanced as well he's he's always been a head coach who's been you know revered by other coaches and and you know somebody who other coaches have have learned from and and tried to mimic but I think in bringing to heel a club who quite honestly in 2018 felt pretty unmanageable um it's it could well go down as his biggest achievement I think Mm. Uh, was that your phone pinging Phil and Sorry, that was my WhatsApp going. Ah, yes. uh, yeah, no, no worries. Is is it news about who's taking over? It's, no, it's just somebody saying that the BLC is currently at Thorpe Arts saying his goodbyes to um, his players, which again I think gives you some indication of the relationship he's had with the squad and and the way he's thought of. You you quite often find that when managers go. It becomes fairly bitter and twisted, and there was never any mutiny with Bielsa. I think that's the thing to say that there was clearly doubt growing, significant doubt growing in the boardroom, 
about whether he was going to be able to to get the season in hand. Um, there's no doubt at all as well that the players were starting to struggle tactically and, and were starting to feel the strain and, and the pressure of the season. Um, but in terms of a replacement, we're pretty much there already. It's it's going to be Jesse Marsh, who was the, the American coach at, at Salzburg and, and RB Leipzig for a short time earlier this season. Somebody the club have known about and, and been in touch with for, a, you know, or at least have, have, have had contact with for a, a long, long time, um, primarily because they, they've had Bielsa on one-year contracts, which has been his wish rather than theirs, and they've always had to have a plan up their sleeve for what they would do if and when he went mid-season or at the end of the season, um, and, and Marsh was always somebody who was, was prominent in their minds. So he needs a work permit, um, they need to tie up the formalities, but that should get announced in the next 24 hours. Marsh is available because he was fired by Leipzig after just 21 games in charge after coming in after Julian Nagelsmann's departure for Bayern Munich. A not altogether successful attempt by Marsh to impose his, his different tactical ideas on Nagelsmann's team and how well Marsh, Marsh I was going to say Marshismo, Marshball, something like that is going to work. At least, this, I guess, is a big question, Phil. People point to Leeds numbers over the last month or two, and, and they are extraordinary. A new Premier League record for most goals conceded in a single month, 20, conceding a goal every 19 minutes in recent matches, conceding three or more goals in five consecutive matches in the competition. How much of that is because of Bielsa's approach? How much of that is down to the thinness of the squad and the lack of reinforcements? And therefore, how much of this is going to be resolved by Jesse Marsh coming in and trying to change things? There are a few factors involved. Injuries have been spoken about all season. But I think more than anything, what we've noticed over the past month, and and it's been a problem at times previously under Bielsa, but it's never been endemic, is that the the man-marking system, the man-to-man system that he goes with religiously, has started to come apart and and has started to, to weaken fairly drastically. And it started to be seen, I think, by opposition teams as a real way to, to get at Leeds. And it's been apparent this week, but also going back a little bit further, that that has, that has been a, a big open wound um, and, and it has led to a huge number of goals being conceded. And you're right. I mean, the, the piece I've written this morning has, has really said that there will there will be a lot of talk about Marsh's philosophy and you know his, his pressing possession based football. What he what he did at Salzburg, but the bottom line here and now is the speed and the quality of the impact that he can make. The decision has been made essentially because the board at Leeds felt that with Bielsa in charge for the last twelve games, there was a high risk of them going down, and by changing manager. That kind of lowers the risk um, and, and gives them a better chance of staying up. And, and for what it's worth, I do wonder whether or not they would have done this had Marsh, as you say, not been out of work and, and available to take right now. Um, but he is going to have to bring the defensive record to heel. He is going to have to make them more potent up front because they haven't been... The, the attacking stats are just not as good and not in line with where they were last season in the Premier League. And it's going to have to happen quickly. Uh, I mean, they, they probably don't need too many results to stay up, but they certainly need some. Um, and, and they're going to have to come pretty rapidly. Phil, lastly, what would be your abiding memory of uh, Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds? It'd be very hard to pick one. I mean, I, I, I very often go back to his, his first game against Stoke Ellen Road, where there was this kind of magical expectation about what Bielsa might do, but also this lingering scepticism and, and cynicism that you couldn't help but have at Leeds because of the fact that nobody did false dawns better than Leeds United. And Stoke were a, 
expensively constructed squad that day. They were favourites for the title. They recruited Gary Rowett. Um, a lot of money put into to putting that that project together. And they were absolutely obliterated by the, the pressing and the passing and movement and, and the rotations. Plays an angle ball in, Click is on. Oh, it's Click. Woohoo! with a goal inside the first 15 minutes. Oh, Leeds United is celebrating all over the park. I just remember everybody coming out of the stadium that day and thinking. That was that was really special. That's some of the best football anybody could remember seeing for years, if not ever, um, in their lives. And you you almost instantly had this sense that this might work. You know, after all the years where it hadn't worked for Leeds and where it had just been meandering, going nowhere fast, this guy might be the real deal. Um, and quite honestly, from that point, they they never looked back and and have never looked back until it, it started to go a little bit sour this season. Mm. All right, Phil. Well, hopefully fans of some other club are going to be having revelatory sensations like that over a Bielsa debut uh, uh, soon. Uh, For now, many, many thanks for joining us and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. Phil Hay, who you can hear more from uh, today on the Athletic Football Podcast and probably a bunch of other places as well. Uh, Very much a man in demand. All right. Uh, Daniel, what's your abiding memory of Marcelo Bielsa? I think he is the manager, and this sounds slightly trite, but he's the manager that made me really want to watch Leeds United, which for fans of clubs all around the country might be quite a surprising thing. You know, Leeds uh, Leeds during the, the 70s and 80s and to an extent the 90s were not a, a particularly well-liked club in, in England. And in certain sections of certain supporters, they remain that way. But for the, the relative neutrals, he made Leeds United appointment television. Um, it's very easy to be kind of nostalgic and, and feel slightly overly romantic about managers like Bielsa at, at clubs like Leeds. But ultimately, why do we go and watch football? You know, if, if it's just about winning trophies, then the reality is, is that most of those go to one of four or five or six clubs. If it's about kind of grinding out one nil wins, then just turn on teletext or Sky Sports News and find out the result. The reality is you want to be entertained and you want to feel a connection with your club. And we also managed to establish that at a club where it felt like it could almost never happen again. Um, and I will I will genuinely miss him, even though I have no affinity to Leeds whatsoever. Well, as a South American, I grew up watching uh, Bielsa's team play. And it's that type of uh, situation where you just tune into his his teams and and I am being a romantic. Sorry, I can't I cannot be a romantic when it comes to to Bielsa, but we are kind of used to to seeing like these big managers come to the Premier League and be successful and achieve things. But it was much more than that in this case because it was the link. It was like uh, a marriage when things just. Uh, they just look right. There's the identification and you see Klopp in Liverpool, for example. It's not just a matter of Klopp being such a big manager. It's, it's that link, it's that bond. And with, with Bielsa, it, it was always like that. And you, you can you can question his choices, especially uh, in the past few few matches. Why didn't he play more defensively? And of course, it's, it's kind of, it's actually obvious and kind of easy to, to say that. So, so what if he tried being more defensive and after three seasons of Leeds playing like that, they, they wouldn't instantly adapt. Then he would get sacked anyway, but he would also have dealt with the fact that he dropped his principles, which he never did in his whole career. So, so to, what, to what extent 
should we really uh, expect him to go more defensively, you know, to play in, in, in a different way? He didn't do that uh, during his whole career. He is very committed to that, to the extent that uh, Leeds were struggling. And there, he still, you can agree or disagree, but there is some level of comfort to know that a manager mm. is that committed. Absolutely. Some level of comfort if you are a neutral or a fan exactly. of the opposition. If he was in charge of, say, Corinthians, Natalie, and they were like uh, hemorrhaging goals. I would be very happy. <laughs> yeah? Even if you went down with him. I, I know what you mean, James. Right. And you, you're, yes, I, I, I understand the point. I said there's some level of comfort, of comfort in that. No, but really, because that's what you get with Bielsa. And, mm. and he would be very happy in Corinthians. <laughs> <laughs> Just on a personal level, the, one of the things I really liked about Bielsa, and it's it's become a, a kind of my broken record, is he always took responsibility himself. He never blamed referees. He never called out his players. He always said, if the players aren't playing well, it's because I've got something wrong, either in training or in my tactical plan. Ultimately, I suspect that that deflects criticism, and whether that's deliberate or otherwise, I don't know. But it was just so refreshing to hear a man constantly asked about VAR, constantly asked about refereeing decisions, and he kind of said, well, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about what I did wrong. Mm. That is something that's pretty rare now in football. And I think maybe this is the reason, because I, I think of, sort of Bielsa as being quite a peculiar man. It's uh, He's different, I think, from... Uh, I think it's easy to see that he's different from so many, but perhaps because... He takes so much responsibility. Maybe this is where the loyalty and appreciation of, of, his, of his players comes into it. And I think one thing that Phil raised um, there about man-marking, perhaps maybe this is where his philosophy maybe has outlived itself due to maybe higher levels of analysis and preparation. I mean, 10 years ago, they could uh, play you know, Man United in the Champions League and obliterate them with this man-marking, with this high intensity. But now perhaps the players on the opposition are becoming more sophisticated. So, for example, I think if you take the Spurs game, the whole thing with Harry Kane dropping deep, I think absolutely mm. destroyed Leeds because once players try to follow, things break down further upfield. There is not enough actual midfielders there to obstruct Kane and Kane had the field day. And I, you know, thinking of Conte, he would have seen that particular weakness. So I think maybe analysis is moving on. Maybe he has to look at his man-marking system. I don't think it's necessarily maybe um, the mentality and the approach has to change, but perhaps certain tactical things. Or maybe he might just say, look, I've done football for 30 years. Maybe it's enough. Hmm. Spurs, uh, also managed by a man who never deflects responsibility or blames other people. Antonio Conte certainly enjoyed the occasion. Uh, four goals, the first uh, wing-back to wing-back affair. Matt Doherty with his first ever Goal for the club. Kulusevski looking great. That's his second goal in three Premier League starts. You mentioned Harry Kane dropping deep, though, Sasha. Oh, oh my word. His pass for Son's goal. Um, we all love Bielsa, but I think we all love watching Harry Kane ping that ball to Son Young Min. It was a masterclass, especially on second half. And not only the vision, the, the things he see. Uh, he sees on, on the pitch, but the execution is spot on every time. It's ridiculous how his vision is ahead uh, of everyone else. And, and this bizarre understanding he has with Son, is, it's, it's incredible. And I, I like Conte after the match saying, my team is not soft. 
And it, it's true because mm. you, you expect more resilience from a Conte team, definitely. So so I like how, how explicit he is with that because Spurs were not soft. 27 minutes on and they were 3-0 uh, up. So it, it, it was a great performance, yeah. Leeds are now two points from the drop. Brentford are only one point above them, also in a mess, and have played a game more. Below Leeds, meanwhile, and just one point from Burnley in the bottom three now, are Everton, although like Burnley, they have games in hand to Frank Lampard's side. Duncan on Thursday, blowing a lot of people's minds by saying he thinks the bottom three are actually all going to stay up. Burnley, Watford and Norwich, with Brentford, Leeds and Everton going down in their place. What do you think about that? Can I unblow their minds by saying I disagree with them? <laughs> I think uh, so do I. Yeah, I think it's nonsense, I think, clearly. I think Norwich will go. Uh, I yep. don't. They've got twelve points for fifteen games under Dean Smith, which is an improvement, but not enough of one. I think Watford will go because their their away form or their defensive record away from home has improved drastically under Roy Hodgson. But they've taken three points from their last thirty available at Vicarage Road, and you need home form if you're going to stay in the Premier League. So I think they go, and I think Brentford are the other ones. Mm. Um, I I think you know this weekend we've seen a a kind of mini dynastical manager who pulled a club up into the Premier League against all expectation, get sacked. And I think if Thomas Frank loses to Norwich next weekend, he might be the next one. Because Brentford are in, I think they're, well, they're in, they're in absolutely no form. They allowed, I know they went down to 10 men, but that should provoke Mm. some resilience. I mean, they allowed Newcastle to have 26 shots, which is, uh, Newcastle don't have 26 shots and Brentford aren't meant to face 26 shots. That to me suggests something is really, really wrong. And, yeah, I mean, if if they lose to Norwich next weekend, that'll be one point from a possible 27 in the league. That's wow. just not good enough. They've played, you know, look at the games they've played recently and they're just rolling over and having their tummies tickled. And that's exactly what we don't expect from, from Thomas Franks Brentford. We have to wait and see if and what kind of impact uh, Ericsson can have in that. Mm. Actually, in a moral way and confidence. And of course, we we saw some glimpses of how much he can contribute to the team technically. Of course, he's not a, a miracle worker and his situation is very peculiar, but he he is, he, he will always be very talented and maybe can lift the mood a little bit. Of course, the circumstances against Newcastle weren't ideal because they, they, they Josh De Silva got sent off with 11 minutes but we'll see uh, maybe it's an element that can make a difference for Brentford mm. as, a, uh, as a resident Brentford fan um, it, it's quite pains me to see the deterioration I mean I went to see Arsenal Brentford the other week and a very static uh, clearly lacking confidence Raya has come in perhaps in the team that's losing confidence while he's still quite a little bit rusty and the way Arsenal kind of played around them was quite sort of painful to watch because they basically, I, th- I think that th- this is what, what, what they've hit now. They, they just can't play anymore. I think it was a bit unfair on Ericsson to come in into a tan-man side. But yeah, the way they got trampled by Newcastle, I think these games against Newcastle, Norwich, and then they have, I think they have Burnley. Yeah, they need yeah. now, I think, to get at least three, four points from those next two. And it's almost so much pressure on... on on Ericsson, but it's also pressure on Frank. Frank, tactically, I think, has to change. Norwich, who this weekend were beaten at Southampton 2-0. That's three defeats in a row for them. Burnley, meantime, roll on. They've only had one defeat in their last seven. They drew at Palace, although they only had one shot on target in that game. If Burnley avoid defeat at home to Leicester on Tuesday, listener, in one of the games they've uh, got in hand, 
They'll be out of the bottom three. And guess who'll be in it? Everton. Everton. Unthinkable. And yet, there you go. After their 1-0 defeat at home to Man City, tea time on Saturday, that's the situation. They've lost now their last 10 meetings with Man City. But should they have lost this one? He strokes chin. Uh, Dan, let's come to you because this is a refereeing controversy. It's very much you <laughs> It is, yeah. Yeah, and I think it was a. I think it was a handball. I mean, they 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 said there wasn't enough evidence to be sure that it didn't hit the sleeve rather than below what? the sleeve, and that is now the new line, which was yeah, brought but... into as as it was sort of brought in as this. Well, now you've got the certainty you wanted, and you think, how is that any more certain? If we're looking at how long people's short sleeves are, and I'm surprised players. I'm surprised any player wears a long sleeve shirt now because it kind of makes me think you're more likely to give away a handball. But yeah, I, I think they should have had a penalty for it. I think City were were the better team in the second half, but I was really impressed with how Everton played in the first half. I, I worried that Lampard was just kind of going to make this sort of free-form Everton roller coaster and hope they just won enough games to, to stay up, which I still think they probably will do. But hmm. there was at least some kind of tactical discipline here against City and they need to take that forward because there's a psychological thing when a team falls in the relegation zone. They they know that trouble is around the corner and they can all see the table every week. But when you fall into that relegation zone, it does cause a kind of panic that says, hang on, now we're the ones that need to get out of here. And... They aren't playing very well at the moment. So, yeah, this was a bit of a free hit. They've got some decent home games coming up, Everton. But I think they'll be fine. I do think they'll be fine. Well, Frank, afterwards, I have a three-year-old daughter at home who could tell you that was a penalty. A mistake is when you've done something wrong and don't have time to think about it. They had two minutes to digest the handball. It is incompetence at best. I think the at best is... Pretty yeah, I hate at that. the end of that. I sentence. absolutely hate that. Yeah, mm. I mean, we. I, I wrote. Well, a you column. can understand him being upset, but yeah, yeah, I can. But I wrote a column last last Friday about um, this kind of creeping conspiratorial theory element to football. They got you supporters. too, hard supporters. Yeah, exactly. The man made me write it, but um, yes, it doesn't help when managers say competence at best because the implication is that the alternative is that there's some form of corruption and you'd be surprised how many fans buy into that sort of stuff mm. I agree with Daniel when, when he says that in the end I think Everton will stay up because I think if you look at the squad the, the talent of the players I think it's going to make a difference in the end plus you see something's changing you see that they show more organization they show more energy i think they 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 really changed their their body language uh, and the way that they behave on the pitch they defended really well on first half it was uh, definitely a, a very harsh result on everton and it was man city pulling a man city again because they're just finding ways of winning even though there's controversy involved but it's it's just it's man city even though they're not going to win the title. Well, City next up will be travelling to Championship Peterborough in the FA Cup fifth round on Tuesday. Everton, meanwhile, host Boreham Wood. Boreham Wood, who are yet to concede a single goal in the competition this season. Boreham Wood, who were one of the winners over Eastleigh to stay third in the National League on Saturday. Could they spring a huge cup upset? We'll be talking about that and the rest of the FA Cup fifth round next. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Yep, the FA Cup's traditional. What the f***? They've scheduled it in the middle of the week. Fifth round is with us. All games are going to be televised in some way or another. A little bit of red button involved for Palace, Stoke and Saints West Ham, but fair enough. Tuesday, you've got Peterborough hosting Man City. Palace, Stoke, Borough, who put out Man United, will take on Tottenham. Then on Wednesday, it's Luton, Chelsea. Blues beat uh, Luton 3-1 in this competition, round four, last season. That was at Stamford Bridge, though. Uh, And also that night, there's Saints West Ham and Liverpool, Norwich, and then on Thursday, Everton are up against the lowest-ranked team, Boreham Wood. And on Monday, you've got Nottingham Forest, Huddersfield. Why is that on Monday, Daniel Story? Um, that's a very good question. All right, then. There is a reason for it, though. I'll okay. find out. Good. I'll answer that after we've chatted. In the it. meantime, clearly the biggest story of any of that is Boreham Wood. Non-league Boreham Wood, the lowest-ranked team, etc. and so on the club whose chairman had to mortgage his house just to get them through the pandemic, the only team yet to concede a single goal in this competition this season. Crikey. And given that they're playing an Everton team whose concerns are probably elsewhere on their Premier League survival, might we see an almighty upset here? Well, one man who's been watching Boreham Wood, the Wood, all season is BT Sports' Adam Summerton. What does he think? Adam! Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm, I think, well, Adam, what do you think? I think that they're a horrible team to play against and, and that's how they want it to be. Um, they just concede so few goals, the best defensive record in the National League. They're very stubborn, as you've just mentioned. They haven't conceded a single goal in their FA Cup run this season, which when you look at some of the sides that they've played, is quite the feat, really. I mean, they've only how, conceded they 17 it? goals. Well, that's just so well organised. And I think that... One thing that hasn't really been discussed that much actually about this run and the success that they're having this season is that they're doing it whilst contending with some injuries to some important defenders actually. They're without uh, Fifield at the moment, they're without Elis Sammy, both of whom would start if they were fit. Mafuta, who plays in central midfield has been unavailable recently as well. They lost in my opinion, the best striker outside of the Football League at the end of last season when Shimanga uh, left the club for Stockport. They lost their goalkeeper at the start of this, uh, earlier on in the season, Ashmore as well, uh, to injuries. So they lost the spine of the side. So they're, they're right in contention to win the National League. And they're also managing to get to the last 16 of the FA Cup with some significant injuries. I just hope, James, that they have Kane Smith fit for this game because he and Mendy, the two wing-backs, are fundamental to the way that they play. Uh, Kane Smith is a big Everton fan. You'll have seen him with his Hibbert shirt on the pitch after they beat Bournemouth. Uh, He's missed the last two games with an injury and it would be such a shame if he wasn't fit. Mendy on the other flank, a year ago, he was getting up at six every morning to work on a building site. Before that, he was a cleaner. Before that, he separated rubbish for a waste management firm. His last job before he uh, went full-time with football was building houses in Kensington. And he once upon a time was in Atletico Madrid's youth system. So he's had quite a journey. But, But those two... 
really are so important to the way that they play in terms of the creativity that they can provide as well. But yeah, they, they just want to be as as horrible to play against as they possibly can be. And, it, and it's worked a treat for them this season. It's extraordinary. And against an Everton team who are not exactly prolific in terms of scoring goals, especially with Dominic Calvert-Lewin, ruled out for even longer, we, we hear now. What would you think? What, what are the chances? What percentage chance do you think they would have of taking it even to maybe penalties? Well, it's it's a small chance because you know they're playing Premier League opposition, and we can't underestimate that. You know, you, I remember the run that Lincoln City had when they were a National League side when they ended up at the Emirates against Arsenal. They put up actually quite a valiant fight in the first half, but eventually were rather overwhelmed. And you could see a similar scenario happening here. But you know, they went into the Bournemouth game clearly as massive underdogs. I remember Luke Garrard talking about Scott Parker's clobber and how he wanted some of his clobber. He said it's the best dressed man in the football league or something. And I think he was saying so. Found that quite amusing going into that game. That, but he's Luke Garrard's a great story in himself. I mean, I think he's been at the club around a decade now. He was the youngest manager in the football league in in, in sorry in the top five leagues when when he got the job. I think he might still be actually the same age as Wayne Rooney, thirty six. I can't believe that he's not been picked off yet by a football league club. Uh, he's shown incredible loyalty to both the chairman, Danny Hunter, who, by the way, is um, a big Chelsea fan, Danny Hunter. So he'll be looking forward to coming up against Frank Lampard. But uh, yeah, he, he's just he's a really good man manager, Luke Garrard. Uh, and when you read interviews and when you listen to interviews with the Borumwood players, his man management goes a long way. He's got them believing in, in doing the impossible. And I think it was looked almost impossible to win at Bournemouth you know, against AFC Wimbledon. That was clearly a difficult task as well. So the odds are stacked against them, but I wouldn't rule it out. Oh, there you go. That's coming up on Thursday night. If they get through that, imagine if they got Forest. The wood, Forest. Have you, any word on why that, that fixtures on I, Monday? I think, yeah, I think it's simply just that the uh, the FA wanted every game to be on TV. Uh, mm. And Forrester's championship game against Sheffield United is on Friday night. So Forrester playing Friday, Monday, because they couldn't play Wednesday, Friday. Okay. It was that exciting. Okay, good. Yes, so, yeah, so <laughs> the answer is do not ask me that question. <laughs> so, uh, well, Thursday, clearly that one's going to penalties. That's going to be extraordinary drama. What What else? I mean, where where, where might other upsets come? And any other fixtures you're excited by? Chelsea at Kenilworth Road, a Luton team who've won six of the last seven in all competitions? Yeah, Luton-Chelsea is the is a kind of likely banana skin, I suppose. Middlesbrough-Tottenham feels feels like that's a, a, a very noughties cup fixture to me, <laughs> Middlesbrough-Tottenham. Uh, but yeah, I think Luton-Chelsea would be the one. I don't, for anyone who hasn't been to in the away end at Luton, at Kenilworth Road, you literally walk through a row of houses and pass someone's back garden to get up there. So it feels very kind of old school FA Cup. So yeah, that's, that's the tie of the round for me. Lovely stuff. Okay. Uh, well, we've still got the top four race and that to have a quick check on in the Premier League before we get on to, for many people, the highlight of today's show, and that is the Intertotally Cup match four featuring Sasha Gurionov. That's coming up. But next up, Premier League top four. We're all driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
and Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Premier League top four. Man United are still fourth, uh, with West Ham fifth, two points behind Ralph Rannick's side. Both those teams, though, have played 27 matches. Arsenal, who are level with West Ham, have three games in hand. Crikey. Spurs, five points off the top four, have two games in hand. Wolves, beaten, of course, by West Ham this weekend and beaten last Thursday by Arsenal and are seven points off the Champions League places. Uh, they do have one game in hand, but that's obviously not as much as Spurs and Arsenal. Hoof. Uh, well, West Ham Wolves. Thomas Suchek, the only goal of the game, on his birthday with his granddad watching live. That's the first time he'd seen him in action. That's That's a lovely story. Uh, so that's nice. But I kind of feel like we want to talk about Man United-Watford. I know we talk about Man United a lot. Daniel, you saw them uh, away at Atletico Madrid looking excellent in the Champions League. Is that right? No. Not looking not looking excellent in the Champions no, League. No, I don't think they were. I think they were they were kind of rotten for the first hour. They couldn't pass in their own half. And against oh, Watford, that's right. No, yeah. Against Watford, they were able to pass in their own half, but they, right. they couldn't finish the chances or, or find the final ball. Um, how, how did it finish goalless? It finished goalless because Cristiano Ronaldo is kind of unfit for purpose at the moment. I think in his last 10 games, he's had 36 shots and scored once which is if you're not going to press and you're not going to create and you're not really going to move much, the one thing it would be nice if you could do is finish. But. Absolutely. I mean, fans of his, oh, mum, kind of the world is so unfair, pal, had a really vintage time <laughs> of it watching the, this game. There was one moment in particular where he was just stood disinterestedly while the action was going on around him in the Watford box. And I think the ball even bounces off him as he stood hands on hips or whatever. Yeah, remarkable. I mean, it's a shame to see it go that way but in other ways it's you know not uh, Natalie how can you have the likes of Ronaldo Bruno Fernandes Sancho on the second half and still don't score against Watford like because it was such a dominant performance from from Man United and like they they couldn't take the good moments they had on the match and you drop points against Watford when you're facing next Manchester City Tottenham and Liverpool like that mm. is just bad timing that's terrible timing. You need you need the three points there because they, they have a big month ahead of them now. Uh, one other game which doesn't really fit into any of those things except to say well done Aston Villa because they got a much needed win. 2-0 away at Brighton. They actually beat Brighton of course in the reverse fixture 2-0 as well. Ollie Watkins on the score sheet both times but very little in between. Brighton now on their worst losing streak of the season. That's three defeats in a row. The Seagulls only have one shot on target. Crikey. Any thoughts on that? Or do you want to just get on to the Intertotally Cup? Sasha quiz, does. Quiz, quiz, 
All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll get onto that. Uh, I'm going to regret uh, a few celebratory pints after the game yesterday because my brain doesn't seem to function anymore. I wonder why so. you were sweating so much. <laughs> All right, then. After this, into Totally Cup, match four. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. It's the Intertotally Cup, everybody. All right, this is match four of this season's tournament. And yes, it's been a cracker so far. We open with Duncan Alexander beating Alvaro Romeo 4-0. Then Dom Fifield downed Tom Williams 4-1. Thursday, Benji Lanyado had a narrow Hail Mary 3-2 win over Adrian Clark. Now, two more contestants enter our big Budokan ring thing. Up first, he's a Liverpool fan who spends his weekends rushing between at least three games. From the east, via the northwest, it's our friend, Sasha Goriana. Sasha, so nice of you to join us uh, for the Intertotally Cup. Have you come far? Uh, no, I've just come from the pod. Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's. Um, I wish I was in a slightly fitter fighting state, but I'm okay. going to give it my best go. All right. Uh, nice jaunty music. What was that? That was Kino, uh, Victor Tsoi. They were late sort of uh, 90s band, um, and they were quite sort of groundbreaking uh, back in the USSR. Unfortunately, the lead singer got killed in a car crash in August 1991, but mm. they remain like one of those iconic iconic bands, iconic voices um, mm. of uh, sort of late 80s Soviet Union. Very much like yourself, Sasha. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha, who placed fourth last year in our special third-fourth playoff, to Julian Laurence. Let's find out who Sasha's going to be facing in the first round this season. And his opponent. She's a recent nominee at the Sports Journalism Awards for her prodigious work ethic, and this QBR fan's probably got another podcast to do as soon as she finishes this one. Representing South Africa Road, it's Flo Lloyd Hughes. All right, Flo Lloyd Hughes. Good morning. Good morning. Bit of pig bag there, just going to wake everybody up. Very nice. Yeah, wanted to make sure everyone was alert and ready to quiz. Nice. I, I know you grew up watching the Intertotally Years on Skyflow. Now here you are about to actually take part. How, do, how does that feel? It feels incredible. It really does. Um, I never thought I would be able to fulfil my lifelong dream. So never stop dreaming, kids, is what that's, I'll say. That's very beautifully put. All right. Uh, how do you feel about drawing Sasha? Not great, to be honest. Um, I didn't actually know that he, he came fourth last year, so that intro definitely um, freaked me out a little bit. So okay. here we go. <laughs> All right. If anything, I should have come third, but I had to let Jules win because Jules actually forced the playoff, which he wasn't in the original uh, plan. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was kind of you, uh, Sasha. Maybe you'll feel magnanimous with Flo as well. Uh, whoever does go through to the quarterfinals will win a £10 from Paddy Power to place on a bed of your choice with the winnings going to charity. Uh, what, what charity are you picking, Sasha? International Red Cross. OK, excellent. And, and what is your wager? Uh, that uh, Boreham Woods would be level with Everton at 90 minutes. Interesting. Well, best of luck from, with that from all sorts of perspectives. And what about you, Flo? What's your charity? My charity is Insight NGO, which is a charity supporting LGBTQ youth in Ukraine. Oh, wow. 
Excellent. Okay. And uh, uh, what's your bet? My bet is for QPR to get promoted, which for the record, I don't actually necessarily want that much. I think it would be a terrible idea and we would lose most of our games in the Premier League. But uh, I think it's probably still Uh, Mm semi-realistic. So that is my bet. Crikey. Well, let's see. Sasha, you're up first. Here come your questions. Question one, Sasha. Which team... Did Spain dramatically beat 5-3 after extra time in their round of 16 game at Euro 2020? Croatia. Correct. Question two. At which Brazilian club did Ronaldinho start his career? Botafogo. Is incorrect. Natalie, who is it? Grêmio. Oh, Grêmio. Question three, Sasha. This is the career path of which championship player? Sunderland, Newcastle... Nottingham Forest. Current or, or past? Current. Sunderland, then Newcastle, and now Nottingham Forest. Oh, um. Oh. <sighs> I am Sunderland, Nick. Um. Gonna have to hurry you, no, Sasha. No, no, no. Daniel? It's the ginger in the Esther, Jack Colback. Indeed it is. <sighs> That's right. a tough, tough question. question yeah, I, I wasn't really going to get that. I was not going to get that. All right, OK. So one for three so far. Question four. Mm. Against which team was Arsene Wenger's final Premier League match as Arsenal manager? Oh, come on. Mm. That's not a question for a hangover, is it? No. <laughs> Vast. Arsene Wenger bowing out. Stoke. Ooh, I can see where you're going, but it was actually Huddersfield. Ah! (laughs) All right, question five. To double your score, Sasha. In which country did Nicholas Anelka finish his playing career? Qatar. Is incorrect, Sasha. It's India. That is... You've been stitched up there, Sasha. Well, well we haven't heard Flo's questions yet, so... Yeah. This has been... True. You know, I've been listening to the previous games. This has been yes. a tough year. It has tough. been a tough year. We make no excuses for that. <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> for everybody. Wow. Um, yeah. Anilka probably should have got... Yeah. That's... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And especially because he's been around so much. One out of five. I mean, it has been a tough year. And... Two of our previous contestants you would beat with that score. So let's just see if Flo can beat it as we ask her question one. Flo, which team did Spain beat on penalties in the quarterfinals of Euro 2020? Switzerland. Is correct. You're level now with Sash. This to go through to the quarterfinals. Question two. At which Argentinian club did Sergio Aguero start his career? Oof. You can have a pop at this, surely. River Plate? Is incorrect. It was Independiente. Question three, then. Still plenty of chances to take this. This is the career path of which current championship player? Gangon, Leicester City, Standard Liège, Brighton, Fulham. 
Gangon, Leicester City. Anthony Anthony Knockout? Is correct, Flo Lloyd Hughes, and you are in the quarterfinals. <laughs> I, really, I really did not see that coming. I'll tell you oh, that much. <laughs> really? It, Let's see how you would have done. Yeah, they yeah, paid yeah. 12 million for him. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. 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 Knockout, and that's exactly what you've done to Sasha nice. Gurianov. Nice. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely mm. done. Let's just see the next, uh, how, what, what kind of final score you would, you would come up with. Question four. Against which team was Sir Alex Ferguson's final Premier League match as Man United manager? Oh. See, Sasha's thinking, I would, I mean, that I would have got. Yeah. 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 That's uh, an easier question than that. Mm. Is that an easier question? Mm-hmm, it is. Mm. Yeah. All right. Flo, what'd you got? Yeah. I think score. I'm trying right. to work out who. I, I feel like it might be being a team that got was going to be relegated or relegated around that time. So that's why I'm trying to do the math. But I'm going to go with Stoke City. Hey, well, everyone likes saying Stoke for that. But no, West it's Brom. West Brom. Yeah. Uh, five, yeah. All right. And here's a really nice question. Question five. In which country did Robbie Fowler finish his playing career? Australia? or Actually, no, sorry. India. Wrong. Thailand. End. Wrong. Thailand. Yes, oh, Sasha. Yeah. You would have United. Got... <laughs> Sasha's not reacting well at this moment. Damn. He's completely lost it. The incredible soak, Sasha Gurunov. Not coming back next season. This is so unfair. Um, And well played, Flo. Well played, (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Well played, Flo. There's nothing better than a a quiz where the winner apologises for winning. (laughs) (laughs) We're all nice people here. And, uh, you know, the values of sportsmanship, I I think, are at the heart of what the Intertoti Cup represents. But how how do you feel about going through to the quarterfinal where, checks notes, you will be facing... Ooh, crikey, you're going to be either facing Daniel or Michael Cox. That's very generous you to say it in that way, <laughs> James. I feel like the fact that I got through on getting two questions right doesn't fill right. me with a whole ton of optimism and confidence going forward. But you know what? Anything can happen. It's, yeah. it's the intertotally quiz or whatever it's called. So exactly. you know, we, can't, we can't predict anything here. It's cup quizzing. Literally anything can happen. And I should mention, though, that throughout that, Daniel was nodding convincingly to every question pretty much they answered. So it looks that like he's... True. He's, he's in great shape ahead of that mm. absolutely huge yeah. first if round If you could match only up. ask me exactly the same five questions as one of these two guys, I'll be, I'll be fine. Oh, oh, how many did you get out of ten then, Daniel? Uh, I Seven or eight, maybe? <sighs> Fighting talk, huh? Hello. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but, well, but it's Michael, isn't it? So are you listening, Michael Cox? Are you? <laughs> All right. Uh, Flo, listen, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you in round two, if not before. But in the meantime, congratulations. See you there. Felicitations, Florence. You're through to the next round of the Intertotally Cup. And if you want to follow Flo's bet that QPR will be promoted back to the Premier League this season, you'll get odds of 7-1 to at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. And please gamble responsibly. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the end of today's Totally Football show. Sasha, thank you so much for being part of it. Sorry, though. You know, the breaks went the way they did on that uh, intertotally. This is football. This is football. Mm, it is, isn't it? All right. Uh, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too, Natalie and Daniel. Thank you for being with us. Can you just call me to just so I can see the game faces on Daniel and Michael's? Uh, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that that's going to be so entertaining. I'm already excited <laughs> about it. All right. Michael's game face is pretty impassive. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah he just yeah. sits there. <laughs> it's calmly. 
It's more the voice that will knock me out of the competition than, <laughs> yeah. than the face, to be honest. Well, uh, and do, do we know when that when that's coming up, uh, producer Charlie? Not yet. No, it's just you just kind of have to listen to every episode, uh, listener, to you know to make sure you catch it. But uh, still to come in the first round, we have Michael Cox against Daniel Story, the uh, Horncastle Eccleshare duel, which is very keenly anticipated, yeah. and Matt Davis Adams against Julian Laurent. So that's going to be huge. Yeah. All right. Uh, One of those coming up on Thursday. Uh, For now, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks, as I mentioned, to everybody. And most of all, well, producer Charlie and you, listener, will be back on Thursday. Do hope you'll be with us then. Cheerio. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.